Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Many of you are probably familiar with the name Babe Ruth. Anybody not know who Babe Ruth is? This is the place for shame. Okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No shame. Um, Babe Ruth uh, made a name for himself in Major League Baseball as the Sultan of Swat. You guys heard that? The Sultan of Swat. Babe Ruth was, uh, by all accounts, this larger-than-life character who could hit a baseball seemingly forever. Um, and, And he kind of came to prominence in the early part of the 20th century. And, and eventually, what some of you probably don't know, maybe a lot of you know, is that Babe Ruth became, uh, ended up being part of what many people would describe as the worst cha- uh, trade in sports history. You guys familiar with that? Babe Ruth was part of the worst trade in sports history. See, he started his career in 1914 with the Boston Red Sox. And he was a, a really good pitcher and a sometimes good hitter. He, he hit more home runs than a lot of people, but it wasn't, like, astounding. Uh, but for five years, he helped lead the Boston Red Sox to a, a three, pennant, a three, three World Series titles. And, and so he was fairly effective, but get to the end of the five years, and, and Babe Ruth and management were having some, some issues, and, and Babe Ruth wanted a bigger contract, and they sort of kind of back and forth, and you know how sports uh, negotiations go. Eventually, the management of the Boston Red Sox decided that uh, it would be better if we just got rid of Babe Ruth. So they reached out to the New York Yankees, and they, there was no traded player. They traded Babe Ruth for $100,000 cash and a loan for $300,000 that they reportedly spent on theater productions the worst trade in sports history, because when Babe Ruth got to New York, uh, he all of a sudden started hitting unbelievable numbers of home runs, seemingly impossible that he would hit 60 home runs in a year when it was in the 20s before, but he hit 60-plus home runs and just led the the New York Yankees to four titles, and ultimately the, the Yankee Stadium was known as the house that Ruth built. Uh, on the other hand, Boston fell into an 86-year title drought that they referred to as the curse of the Bambino, because they felt like that was the reason that they didn't win any titles. The tra- trade seemed right in the moment, but in hindsight, it became the worst trade ever for the Boston Red Sox. I think we face something similar. When it comes to our lives of following Jesus, I think every last one of us face these encounters where we see things that seem right in the moment. They seem right for now. And so we make that choice, but in hindsight, what we discover, it was the worst trade ever. We traded our relationship with God for a lie. Some of us have have been able to identify with this when it comes to relationships, We engaged in what seemingly was a good relationship. This was a good choice. And years later, we discovered we had traded our relationship with God for a lie. 
or, or we made a trade, some of us made a trade of, uh, of comfort from the Lord for a bag of Pop-Tarts, and five minutes later, we realize we've made the worst trade ever. I think we all face this at some level that we discover that we make decisions that seem right in the moment, and later on we discover we've traded our relationship with God in the worst trade ever. Can you identify with this at any level? We've been in this series through the book of 1 John called Love and Truth, and since the beginning of, of June, and, and we're going through, and we're going to go all the way through uh, the book of 1 John, and just to, out of curiosity, show of hands, how many of you are still reading the book of 1 John once a week? All right, handful. Good, good, good. It's not too late to start. The series still has a number of weeks, but as you read through the book of 1 John, you're going to, uh, each week you're going to discover new things. Um, what I told you at the very beginning of this series is that John is writing this to a network of house churches who have just undergone a church split. They, they, for, they had false teachers in these, in these house churches who left and took some people with them. And so John is writing to these churches to basically try to stabilize the churches on some sort of foundation and at the same time to fight against the false teaching of these people who were proponents of an early form of Gnosticism. We've talked about that. What we're going to see today is that John addresses this challenging choice that we all face between loving God and loving the world. Though every last one of us faces an option to trade our relationship with God for a relationship with things in the world. And so John definitively says... Do not trade your relationship with God for temporary things. I'm calling today's message the worst trade ever. Would you pray again with me? We're just going to invite God to, to speak through his word. So, Lord, I do welcome you uh, in greater measure. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for your presence. I'm thankful that you are a God who heals, that there's nothing that's happening in our world today that's outside of your view that we can trust you to sovereignly do what it is that you desire. And so, Lord, I do welcome you to do that here. God, as we read your word, I pray that you would speak, that you would touch our hearts, that you would give us insight, Lord, into what you're doing in the world. I pray, God, that you would put power on this message, that you would enable me to speak your word clearly. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill me now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First John chapter 2. I'm going to pick right up where we left off. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, it says this. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world." The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. If you have been reading this weekly, 
And over and over you come to this section, what you probably feel like is it makes a weird shift. It's like this doesn't feel the same as the verses up leading up to it. And you probably have experienced this as a change. The, the style changes and the tenor of the, of, of the writing changes. John has been painting this picture of what it looks like to be someone who knows God. And as we've talked about in the first three weeks, he puts these conditional statements over and over and over, right? If anyone would, claims to know God, right? These, these things that we talked about in week two that are, are uh, the ways that John signifies he's saying what the false teachers were saying. Anyone who claims or if we claim, these statements are what the false teachers had said. And so for the first two and a half chapters... John is building this structure, he's painting this picture of what it looks like to actually be a Christian. What does it look like to actually be a follower of Jesus? And John paints this picture, but in case you missed the first three weeks of this, I want to give you a summary statement that sort of sums up what John has said so far in the first three weeks. We can sum it up in one sentence. To know God is to be committed to loving Christian fellowship that is centered on Jesus because we all sin and need Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. That's the summary of where we've been. If you missed the first three weeks, you can catch them on the podcast, but that's the summary. That's where we've been. But then John gets to verse 12, and it changes. It feels different. And in verse 12, what he's doing is he's saying, after I've said all of these things, he says, you people in these remaining churches, you're the real deal. You are it. I am convinced that you actually embody what it is that I've been saying. Now, you could get lost in some of the ways that he says that. You, you know, he says sort of these parallel statements. It's like, it feels like you just said that. Why did you say it again? Or, uh, you know, he says this, this thing of dear children and fathers and young men, and you go, what about the women? Right? We could get stuck in all of the little things that he's doing, but what he's doing is stylistically making the point that he believes the remaining people in these house churches are the real deal. They are the people of God. So when he says, dear children, he's referring to the whole church. When he says, you fathers, what he's, not, he's not saying just the men. He's saying, you older people. And he says, you young men. He's saying, you younger people. It's inclusive of the women. It's not saying... Uh, making any real gender statement, but it's more about age. And so there's these echoes of the things that he has said for the first two and a half chapters. What he's referring to is he's saying all these things. He's saying, I'm writing to you because you are the real deal. You are the people of God. I'm writing this because, in light of all the qualifiers I've made, you meet all of the qualifiers. I'm writing you because you are the church, that you legitimately are true believers with real relationship to God. And here's the deal. He highlights some of the benefits because real relationship with God has real benefits. Real relationship with God has real benefits and value. Look again at the things that he says. Verse 12, he says this, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That's a benefit as a follower of Jesus that you have. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That's powerful. Verse 13, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. He says, you actually know the Father. You actually know Jesus who is from the beginning. You have a relationship with the creator of all things. 
He says, you have overcome the evil one. The lies and the, the pointing, the, the arrows of the enemy have no power over you. You have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You know who, him who is from the beginning. You are strong. You're in the word of God lives in you. You have overcome the evil one. I think what happens so often to us is that we fail to take stock of what it is that we have in our relationship with God. I think if you're already in a relationship with God, if you already have a relationship with God, the primary problem that you run into is not sinfulness. The primary problem that you run into is forgetfulness. You forget who you are. You forget whose you are. You forget what you have. We lose perspective on our relationship with God, and in losing perspective, these little other things look like good options. I think most of the time our problem is not sinfulness as much as it's forgetfulness. Psalm 103 says this, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all His benefits. What benefits? Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. If you are someone who has a relationship with God, think about every time you've stumbled into sinfulness and you've found yourself again in this place again where I'm stuck in this sinful pattern. How much of that is, is, is really because you forgot that you had all these things and you were the child of the king? Most of the time it's forgetfulness. It's not really sinfulness. Forgetfulness leads us into sinfulness. If you were able to keep perspective on who you were, whose you were, and what you had, how much easier would it be to resist sinfulness? I mean, think about it for a minute. You're someone who you just get angered easily, right? Anybody like that? You get stuck in traffic and you're just angry at all the idiots around you, right? Some of you laugh really loud. Like, yes, that's, I, I get that. But we get just super angry and we're like, I can't believe they're just, you know, we, we, we assume that they're just naturally jerks who are, you know, they got in their car today just to irritate everybody in traffic. Or, or maybe you're somebody who just gets really angry, you fly off the handle about politics, or you get really angry in the workplace, or you get really angry with your family. That's a little closer. If you're angry with the people next to you, don't, don't acknowledge that. But you get really, really angry, and it's your tendency to fly off the handle and express your anger. But what if right before you went to express your anger, you remembered, no, 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 God has crowned me with love and compassion. And not just crowned me with it, he's given me enough of it to give away. I have enough love and compassion that I can give it away to the people who are making me angry. Would it be easier for you to contain your anger? If you had some tangible way that, oh, God just gave me a crown to remind me. I'm wearing this crown on my head because I need to remember. It would be easier. And can you imagine what it would be like if you remembered that? Or, or maybe you're someone who caves to like destructive, sinful desires. You're someone routinely who's just giving in to these desires and, and they just destroy you. Maybe it's alcohol or pornography or shopping or any number of things or 
food. You just sort of like, I just naturally go to these places and I, I know that I'm, it's self-destructive. I know that it's not healthy. I know it makes a mess in my life. But I always do it. But what if you had a tangible representation to remember that God desires to satisfy you and all of your desires with good things? And so before you grab the bottle, you remember that God wants to satisfy my desires with good things. How much easier would it be to not do it? Most of the time, we struggle with forgetfulness more than we do sinfulness. Or maybe you stumbled into sin, right? We find ourselves there and we're like, here I am again, what a, what a useless pile. And, I, you know, and we find ourselves into sort of this self-loathing, like, you know, I have to make myself feel bad enough so that God can forgive me. But then you remember, no, the Lord takes all of my shame. I don't have to be somebody who lives under shame and condemnation. The Lord forgives me how much quicker would you find your way out of shame and condemnation and self-loathing? I can imagine in all of these cases, remembering who God is, who we are, and what the benefits of our relationship to God are actually set us free. Can you imagine that? That most of the time we actually have just forgotten who we are. And it's important for us to remember who we are and who God is and what the benefits of our relationship to Him are for more than just ourselves. It will help us not be deceived by the enemy, but the other part of that is our evangelistic witness. Let me think about it like this. Evangelism should be the most natural thing in the world for us, right? Somebody described it like this. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. If you are aware of the benefits and the things that you have received in your relationship to God, it's really easy to give them away. You know, I have learned that I don't have to sit buried in shame. Like, whatever you think about me, I don't have to wear that. I have learned this. The reason I don't have to wear that is because Jesus loves me. So even if you think I'm an idiot, Jesus loves me, so that's okay. I don't have to be buried in shame, and I don't have to wear your shame for me. And the beautiful thing is, I feel freedom there. And so when I find somebody buried in shame and who's, who's living under the curses of other people and their expectations of other people, and they're not living up to the expectations of other people, guess what? I can say, you don't have to do that anymore. Jesus can set you free from that. There's an evangelistic power in understanding who you are, who God is, and what the benefit of a relationship with God is. And here's the problem. I mean... If we aren't clear, it's not clear to anyone else. Somebody said, uh, my uh, mentor in Columbus said this about preaching, which I think applies here. He said, if there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pews. And his point was, if I'm not really clear about what I'm trying to say, it gets less clear out here, right? I think this is true about evangelism. If we're not clear about what the benefits of relationship with God are, when we try to stumble our way through some sort of gospel pre presentation, it gets less clear to the people around us, which is why it's so important for us to understand what the benefits of relationship with God are. I mean, think about it for a minute. 
who wouldn't want a relationship with a God who heals their diseases? Doesn't that seem like really good news? Who wouldn't want a relationship with somebody who forgives all my sin? Doesn't that seem like good news? Who doesn't want a relationship with somebody who sets me free from shame and condemnation? Do you know everybody around you walks around in that nonsense just like you do? Whether they follow Jesus or not, everybody has this sort of shame voice that's constantly trying to condemn them. Can you imagine what it does for someone when you can say, Jesus will set you free from that? And you pray for them, and he does. It's the most naturally evangelistic thing. But the fact of the matter is you have to know what the benefits of relationship with God are. And if you've never applied them to the deep levels of your life, if there's there's mist in your mind, there's fog in all the people around you. I mean, think about it for a minute. As if you're a follower of Jesus... Just think about your own life. Can you imagine and articulate what the benefits are for you for having a relationship with God? And here's, let me put a qualifier to that. I'm not talking about, well, I go to heaven when I die, or I don't go to hell when I die, because it turns out the New Testament writers really don't talk about that when they talk about benefit of relationship with God. There are legitimate benefits to your relationship now with God. Are you clear? And can you articulate them clearly? Because the world around you desperately needs some sort of freedom now. And guess what? You have it. If you have a relationship with God, you have it. And you have it to get away. But if the answer to that question is no, that you can't articulate it, two things are probably true. You find yourself routinely deceived by the enemy. You're constantly finding yourself looking at things that look like good ideas, and in hindsight, they look like the worst trade ever. That's the first thing. The other thing is, is there's probably not a lot of evangelistic fruit in your life. There's probably not a lot of people lining up to be, to, to be disciples and discipled by you if you haven't done that. It, there are legitimately real benefits to relationship with God, and John starts this section reminding the churches of what they are. And the reason he starts there is because he's about to issue the first direct command in 1 John. Look at verse 15. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. John says, don't love the world or anything in the world. And right after that, he used this little trigger phrase, right? We talked about this. He says, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. What he's saying is the false teachers have been saying, you can love the world and you can love the Father. That these two things are not different. That they've been living into this reality. And we need to make clear, though, what John means when he says, don't love the world. Right? A lot of us think, oh, so the trees, don't love the trees, don't love the birds, don't love this building, don't love the chair I'm sitting in. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying at all. You see, God created all things as good, and yet we all know that sin was introduced, and there's some force underneath everything that tempts us to sin and lives in opposition to the Lord. And that's what he's talking about. 
When he's talking about the world and worldly things, he's not talking about the material world. He's talking about this underlying thing that causes all of us to rebel against God, and it causes all of us to be tempted towards sin. It's very similar to the way he uses the word flesh in verse 16. All across the Bible, they use this word flesh. They're not talking about, you know, the, the I don't know, you medical people, epidermis, derm, there's all the, you know, the skin and the veins and the muscles and all the things that sit on the bones. That's not what they're talking about most of the time in Scripture. What they're talking about, they use the word flesh as this innate thing that we have that's broken that causes us to want to rebel against God and tempts us to sin. It's the thing that's passing away. This is what he's talking about in the world. He's talking about the brokenness that's resident in the world that tempts us against God. And so John is saying that you have to choose what you will love, that it's not actually possible to love God and at the same time love the things in opposition to God. That's not possible. You have to choose. And John actually, in order to make it clear, changes the word he uses in verse 16. He uses this word lust. And the point there is to make it clear that the love for the things that oppose God are not actually love. He uses this word lust. See, love in the Bible is this self-sacrificial giving for someone else's benefit. That's love in the Bible. And so we love God. And what that means is we lay down our own rights and our own desires so that we can please God. That's what it is to love God. That it's laying down of ourselves so that we can please God. But lust, when he, John changes the word, he's talking about pursuing a desire for something for what it does for you. And most of us would go, oh, that's like, that's like the sexual stuff. That's what he's talking about. No, well, sort of. That is sort of what he's talking about, but he has a much bigger picture. He's not just talking about that. He lands on this phrase, the pride of life. And what that refers to is the pursuit of possessions to look like someone, to provide myself with some sort of uh, security and satisfaction. It's actually a pursuit of possessions. So it's all those things. It does include that. And John says you have to choose what you will love. You can't love the Father and love the things that are opposed to the Father at the same time. And it's not a teaching that John made up. It's not like John was like, well, let me, let me create this new thing. It's actually Jesus says the same thing. Matthew 6, it says this. No one can serve two masters. You guys know this one. You probably could recite it. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So John and Jesus are saying the same thing, and what they're saying is sin is misplaced love. Sin is misplaced love. That if we make the recipient of our own love ourselves, that's lust. That we pursue something for our own pleasure and our own devices. But love is actually outwardly focused. And at every turn in our relationship with God, we're offered alternatives. Is that not true? Even good things can become lusts of the flesh. It's anything that we pursue to satisfy a desire that only God can satisfy. Even good things. It's refusing to deal with the stress in your life by looking to God to satisfy and instead shopping 
to sort of take the edge off, right? To get a sense of satisfaction. We even put it like a cute little word on this, don't we? What's it called? Retail therapy, right? If we put the word therapy behind it, it makes us feel better because therapy is a good thing, right? So we call it retail therapy. And what this is, is like refusing to deal with the stress in my life by buying things. It's not that shopping is bad. We need things, right? You go to the grocery store and you buy the, the food you need. You go to Goodwill or, or Salvation Army to buy the clothes that you need. Just saying, dollar, one dollar for the shorts that you got. It's a beautiful thing. It's not that shopping is bad. It's that you're lusting after the satisfaction that it will bring. It's not that buying things is bad. It's the alternative desire. See, God is supposed to satisfy you, but you're looking to shopping to satisfy you. Or let me give you another one. It's refusing to stop and offer the anxiety you feel to the Lord so that he can give you peace and instead eating food to comfort yourself. Anybody else do this? I felt like I was so stressed out over the last two days trying to figure out what I would say, if I'm honest. I sat there yesterday and I ate two pouches of Pop-Tarts. <laughs> Instead of saying, Lord, I'm anxious about this and you need to... Like, that comes later for me. It's like, oh yeah, that was a dumb thing to do. What's that? It's a bad trade. It's not that food is bad. It's not that Pop-Tarts are bad, especially the cherry ones. Come on. But here's the problem. I'm lusting after the comfort that it will bring when God is supposed to bring me comfort. Right? That's the problem. Or it's refusing to engage in healthy conversation about the wounding you received and instead binge drinking to numb the pain. Some of y'all are going to, this is going to be the most controversial thing I say all day. It's not that alcohol is bad. The Bible says it gladdens men heart, men's hearts. It's not that alcohol in and of itself is bad. It's that you're lusting after the numbing that it brings instead of allowing God to heal the pain. I didn't ask for people to put their hands up on that one. It's refusing to have the conversation with your spouse about what's wrong in your marriage in order to have that be brought to God and be healed, and instead working yourself to death to avoid the conversation. It's not that work is bad. Work is a good thing. Work is like a pre-fall thing. Like this is something God designed into the... Work is not punishment. It's not a curse that comes from the fall. Work is a good thing. And so it's not work that's the problem. It's lusting after the relief it will bring to not have the conversation that will be so uncomfortable. Maybe one more. It's refusing to allow God to heal the ways that you've been shaped to feel insignificant, overlooked, and unloved, and instead buying all the possessions you can in order to prove to the world that you have value. It's a lot of us, I think a lot of times, we want to prove to everyone else. I got a wall full of books to prove to everybody how smart I am. Anybody else got a wall full of books to prove how smart you are? <laughs> Thanks for the honesty. <laughs> it's not that possessions are bad. It's that I'm lusting after a validation that only God can give me. 
John says that you have to choose what you will love because you can't love both God and the things opposed to God, which is why you have to be really clear about what is yours in your relationship with God. And when it's not clear, these counterfeit alternatives sound like really good options, don't they? I'm just going to drive around the block a few more times to avoid that conversation I don't want to have. And what's not immediately evident to us in all these things is that they're not just temporary comforts. They don't just sort of temporarily make us feel better. They actually are, are an exchange of love. Like we think that going shopping is just an add-on. It's a staple on in my relationship with God. God makes me feel pretty good all the time, except for those times when he doesn't, then I go shopping. It's a staple on. No, it's an exchange of loves. You're trading what is yours for a counterfeit. That's what's happening. It's an exchange of loves. And John says it's a really bad exchange. He says it's the worst trade ever because all of those things are temporary. Look at verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The reason this is a bad exchange is because their ability to heal you and soothe your pain is limited. What John says is their ability to actually fix the problem is limited. They make you forget for a moment but the underlying issue still remains. See, shopping never actually gets rid of your stress. Makes you forget about it for a minute. I know, contrary to some of your belief, shopping does not get rid of your stress. It'll make you forget about it for a minute. Food will never actually get rid of your anxiety. I got done with Pop-Tarts and I was still anxious. It doesn't actually heal the anxiety. For a minute it feels okay, and then you're like, I'm full, and this was a lot of calories, and I still am anxious. Alcohol will never actually heal the wounding that you have. It'll make you forget it for a little while. Work will never actually fix your marriage. Possessions will never actually satisfy your fears. Pornography will never actually solve your relational issues. It never solves them. So when you forget that the fact that there's a God who loves you, who wants to see you made whole who wants to heal your wounds, who wants to reconcile your relationships, what you end up doing is you swap something eternal for something temporary. It's not an add-on, it's an exchange. And the false teachers were saying, well, you can have both. You can have possessions and God. And John says, you have to make a choice. Who are you going to love? What are you going to love? And the question is, what are we going to do with that? Because here's the thing that I wish happened. What I wish happened was I gave my life to Jesus. And I never again doubted. I never again struggled with anxiety. I never again had fear. I never again had issues. I never again had uh, disagreement. That all the time I just always went to God with all of the things. But the fact of the matter is that's not true, is it? I would bet for most of us, probably all of us, but most of us would be honest about this, is that we gave our lives to Jesus and there was some healing, but what we found is that we still struggled. We still ran to the Pop-Tarts when we were anxious, right? We still ran to the bottle whenever we 
remembered the trauma that we suffered, all the hurts that we have. John, in a little while, is going to talk about idols. And what happens in these things is they become idols in our lives. They promise a lot of things, and they're temporary. They never can fulfill. I know maybe most of you aren't Calvinists, but John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols, that every last one of us just constantly produces idols, things that make us feel better for a moment. And I think the invitation here for us, for a lot of us, is that we would clean house. I feel like I talk about this a lot, like every, I don't know, three or four weeks. I think it's a space today for us to surrender those things. I think as I've been talking about these things, a number of us are like, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. I keep chasing relationships to make myself feel better, but really Jesus is the one that can heal this. But I'm going to keep going to these other things because they promise to fix me now. So here's what I want to do. I want, like some of us, maybe, maybe you don't have a relationship with God. You hear about the benefits and you're like, I want that. I want those things. I want to know that I have a relationship with a God who heals me. I want to know that I have a relationship with a God who wants to fulfill my desires and satisfy my desires in a, in a healthy way. I want to know that. And so maybe for you, today is a day. Today is a day where you say, I'm going to say yes to Jesus and this invitation to be in relationship with the, the creator of all things who wants to heal my diseases, who wants to be in relationship with me, who wants to show me what healthy relationship looks like. So maybe that's some of you. But I would say there's a lot of us who find ourselves in a place where today is the day I need to go, God, I've relied on a lot of other things. And today is the day I want to hand them off and come back into intimate relationship with you. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.